I wanted to start this morning by just expressing my gratitude to our whole church, really. Um, I want to say thank you for how much you've been praying for our church, praying for me specifically throughout this really important part of our series in Romans. Um, I, I can tell you've been praying for me, and I've received so many emails, and that's been really wonderful. So thank you for that. Thank you for staying with us throughout this. I know it's been a lot to take in. Uh, it's been an intense study with deep thoughts and lots of arguments arguments and logic, and, and it's a delicate subject, and so thank you for sticking with me. But I also want to say I acknowledge that it's made some people feel a little bit uncomfortable at points, and I get that. Um, and actually, it's weird. I'm kind of thankful for that because I, I have this philosophy as a pastor that if the Bible never makes me uncomfortable, it probably means I'm not actually reading it or studying it. The Bible should make me uncomfortable more often than not, and so so if this has been disruptive for you, um, I, I understand that. But I do want to say, we tried to warn you, I mean, for heaven's sakes, we put the word disruption in the series title. Okay, so there we go. Last, uh, next thing I want to say is that last Sunday, I failed at one of the services to warn parents of children about the delicate nature of what we're talking about. And as I was about two or three minutes into my sermon, and I'm talking about artificial intelligence and robots, I made eye contact with a father who was having an existential crisis. All right, he's like, dude, you got to warn me about these things. So this is your chance, parents, if you want to step out. We are going to continue to talk about sexuality. You're going to need to have your Bible open to two places this morning. Romans 1, we're going to start in Romans 1, and then we're going to leave Romans 1 kind of early on, and we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. Here's what you need to know. When people come to the Bible to find out more about sexuality, we often come asking the wrong questions. The wrong questions. Or at least we ask questions out of order. So we tend to be preoccupied with questions like, who can I have sex with? Or who can I not have sex with? Or when can I have sex with the person I can have sex with? We tend to ask questions like that. We tend to ask questions like the age-old question that every, it haunts every student ministry pastor across the land, how far is too far, all right? <laughs> we love that question. Students love that question. Where's the line? Let's see if I can get as close to it and still get away with stuff, all right. But very rarely do we ask the question that the Bible actually is most interested in, which is this. What is sexuality for? What is the purpose of sexuality? And does the Bible have anything to say about that? So we often, in this conversation, it's a delicate conversation, whether we're inside the church or outside the church, what we're often doing is we're starting with the ethical question, right or wrong, and what's right, what's wrong, what's prohibited, what's not prohibited, but we, for, but we fail to ask first what I call the teleological question, the purpose question. Is there design? Is there purpose? What is sexuality for? Now, finding out what something is for is often a game changer. It changes everything. 
I have a vivid memory when I was much younger of my first experience eating authentic Mexican, um, what's the food that's wrapped in the corn husk? Help me out here. Tamales. Okay, I have it in my notes, but I didn't even look down. Tamales. And I was very young, and it would have been really, really helpful if someone had told me what the corn husk was for. Okay, because here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm young, I'm naive, I'm uncultured, I'm sitting in a relatively nice restaurant, I've ordered tamales, I've never had tamales, and because I'm a polite person, I start cutting into that husk and eating, and the poor waitress walks over and she's like, that's purely for the purpose of holding the food together, all right, okay? Finding out what something is for is often a game changer, and Paul builds his entire argument about sexuality on an understanding of design. That's what he's doing in Romans 1. Will you open your Bible there, Romans 1? We're going to read this passage now for the third time. And so if you're new or you're visiting or you're, just, you're, you're, you're joining us, you're kind of joining us mid-conversation here. And so you'll want to go back if you can and listen to the sermons that come before. So we're dropping in now for the third time. And this time I want to draw your attention to something that Paul's doing in his argument. He's basing his argument on purpose. What's the purpose of sexuality? So look at this. I'll start in verse 22. Paul says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now remember, Paul's argument has been, we reject God, we suppress the truth about God, we want to be spiritual, but we don't want to be surrendered to the creator of the universe, so we create substitutes, we suppress truth, and we worship things that we can control. And Paul describes the impact of that kind of global societal rebellion, it it, it sends society into a free fall, spinning into more and more sin. And he writes 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And what we often miss, because we, sometimes we read really fast, and sometimes if we read passages that are controversial, we can miss things that are happening in the text. And so what I want you to see first is that this entire argument is based on Paul's understanding of the design of sexuality. So two Sundays ago, I drew your attention in 26 and 27, I'd like you to look at your Bible right now, to the way that Paul uses the words natural and unnatural. These are, this is a design argument, this is a design argument. Paul's saying there's a natural character to heterosexual intercourse. It's obvious from the physical anatomy of male and female. 
And the argument Paul's making here is, at least in part, he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about same-sex sexual intercourse as against nature, contrary to nature, because it's clearly what it does is it attempts to use the human body in a way that is contrary to the natural design. Where, for example, in the case of two women, one of those women is having to assume in some artificial way male anatomy. And in the case of two men, the same thing. One of those two men is having to assume in some artificial or unnatural way the female anatomy. And that's, but that's just the beginning. Then what Paul does, and he does it throughout the entire argument, by the way, I, I unpacked that a lot more several weeks ago, so if this sounds really abrupt to you, go back and listen two Sundays ago. The thing that we miss when we're studying this is that it's very evident that when Paul wrote Romans 1, he had the book of Genesis open. Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account. And we don't hear it as moderns, but Paul's readers, the Roman citizens, were hearing this. They're, they were hearing all of these allusions to Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, there's moments where Paul lifts entire texts from Genesis 1 and drops them into his argument. Verse 23, look at your Bible, verse 23. Verse 23 comes directly from Genesis 1 26. You notice the words in verse 23, Paul uses words like image, and then birds, animals, creeping things. If you went back and read Genesis 1:26, where Paul says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds, and the livestock, and the creeping things. Paul is constantly alluding to the creation account to God's work of designing this world, everything about this world, the way we should live, the way we should work, the way we should tend the land, even the way we should think and express our sexuality. Throughout Romans 1, the passage we're studying, Paul goes out of his way to refer to God as creator. I'm talking about the creator. Creators create things with a purpose, with design. Paul says over and over, he uses the Greek words male and female, which come directly from the Greek translation of Genesis 1 and 2. The reader was going, wait a minute, Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 and 2. And Paul says he believed that the early chapters of the Bible give us a map for understanding the purpose of sexuality in God's design. And so we need to go there. So do this, leave Romans, turn to the back. I'll need you in chapter two. We're gonna to go to Genesis chapter two. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read for you part of this creation account, the creation of Eve, Adam and Eve. I'm gonna read it to you. And then I'm gonna share with you four words that capture the heart of God's purpose for sex. Here's what happened. Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But, and this is a crucial statement, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Wonderful passage, formative, it's a foundational passage. But here's what, I want to, here's what I want to draw from this text this morning. There is a fourfold purpose for sex in God's design. Four words that I'm going to draw from this. You can write these down if you're taking notes and then I'll unpack each word. Fourfold purpose for sex. Here are the four words. Pleasure, procreation, union, and heaven. Pleasure, procreation, union, and heaven. And by heaven, I mean, I'll get this to the end. I mean, one, the, the, the main purpose, in fact, those go in ascending order with pleasure being important for sure, but the least of the important, and they go in ascending order towards the fourth word, which is by far the most important, which is that sex is designed to point us forward to where we're headed. By the way, isn't it ironic how in our culture, in our exchange, one of the very first things that we do in our, in our sexualized culture is we flip that that order upside down. And our culture says, by far the most important thing is pleasure. Heaven, who cares about that, right? They flip it. But, but the Bible says, here's the order, pleasure, procreation, union, and heaven. So let's work through those four words together. Number one, pleasure. God designed sex to involve intense physical pleasure. He designed it to feel good. And at one level, you say, if Captain Obvious were here, he would say that is very obvious, okay? It's obvious. And yet, now wait a minute, I am surprised how often I have conversations with Christians who are either surprised to discover or reluctant to admit that God designed sex to feel good. That somehow God is a God of pleasure. But he is. God's not a stick in the mud. God's not a prude. God is a God of pleasure. He created honey to taste sweet and barbecue chips to taste salty <laughs> and sweet. And then he covered your tongue with taste buds so that you could enjoy them. God created sunsets to be gorgeous, and then he put in your eye the most advanced lens the world has ever seen. 
Isn't that true? Have you ever noticed no matter how many additional lenses they put on that iPhone, soon the back of your iPhone will just have 16 lenses on it. You can never quite capture a sunset with your iPhone the way you take it in with this incredible lens that's placed right in your head by God. Thank you. <laughs> to connect, you have a really old iPhone, don't you? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at a sunset. It's gorgeous. I take a picture. It's really, and I have to manipulate it post-picture, right? God created fingernails to be sharp and back scratches to give you the shivers. <laughs> right? And God created sex to feel good. And then he literally covered your body with nerve endings. Now, very rarely does my biology major come in handy as a pastor, but this is one of those moments, okay, where if you, I wonder if you know, if you, if you, if you ever went in and studied this, do you know where the highest, one of the highest concentrations of nerve endings are on the human body? You can imagine where they are. They are on the parts of the body that are used for sexual intercourse. Don't blush. It's okay. Don't blush, all right? Our blushers are broken. <laughs> we blush at this, and we don't blush at what we watched on Netflix last night, okay? Look, God is a God of pleasure. Why in the world would God put one of the highest concentrations of nerve endings there? Because he designed sex to feel great. Now, sexual pleasure is implied all throughout this story. It's obvious from, from the very beginning to the very end. That last verse, 225, where it says, the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed, that is a picture of innocent delight. It's, a, it's definitely a picture of human sexuality. That's not all that it's about, but at the very least we know it is about that. It's about Adam and Eve enjoying something that God created that was good. Adam sings a love poem in verse 23. It's, it's romance. It's, it's, it's sexual. It's about connection. It's about feeling good. It's about enjoying what God has created. The way the story is told from verse 18 all the way through, it builds in anticipation. Adam's alone. God comes and, and says to him, it's not good for you to be alone. There's a lot to that. I'm going to say more in a moment. But at the very least, part of it is that Adam is a sexual creature. The naming of the animals builds anticipation as Adam names the animals. And with each animal that he names, he evaluates whether or not this creature could be the helper that is fit for him and he concludes with each animal lion probably not porcupine definitely not okay camel it's cute I like the humps but it's not going to cut it and he names all these animals until eventually no helper is found that is fit for him and the anticipation and the tension of the passage is building until God puts him to sleep and creates woman. And then Adam erupts with sexual delight, at least in part. But that's just, that's just the first word, pleasure. And too often in our culture, we stop there. But look next. So we have pleasure, but then we have procreation. God designed sex with the unique power to create life. He designed it so that 
New humans come to be when a man and a woman come together in a loving expression of intimacy across sex difference. So sex difference is a part of this. Male and female. It's important to keep in mind that God did not have to do it this way. God could have created asexual reproduction in humans. There are organisms on our planet, amoebas and other kinds of organisms that reproduce without any kind of sexual expression or difference in gender. And God could have created humans that way, but he did not. In his wisdom, in his design, he decided for the ability to create new life to happen in one way and one way only when a man and a woman come together in a bond of sexual intercourse. And it was designed to be loving. Now, okay, one of the things I need to point out right away is we, have, we can distort this in our brokenness and our sin, and often we do. So there's all kinds of distortions to this. Rape can create a human life. Rape is a way we distort what God designed to be beautiful. We twist it, we break it. Nothing's more painful than being the victim of sexual assault and then discovering that a human life was created through that brokenness. It can cause lots of pain. We can distort and manipulate this through certain forms of scientific development. And we live in a broken world where this, this part of God's design can be distorted in a way that can cause pain when a couple who's wanting to create human life discovers to their great hurt that they cannot do that. And they realize they're struggling with issues of infertility. And I've had countless conversations with people in our church who have dealt with that pain. But all of these exceptions require the norm. And the norm is that God designed sex to allow a male and a female to create a new human being together. Stop and think about this for just a minute. What is one thing that every single person in this room holds in common? One thing that every single one of us holds in common, regardless of all of our differences, all of our background, every single one of us is the result of a male and a female coming together and creating life. That's how you got here, okay? Now, let me show you in the text. Genesis 2.18 is a key text for understanding this. We just open, hover over your Bible there. We read fast, so we've read over a word that's really important. It also happens to be one of the smallest words in this verse. The Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That word fit in the Hebrew is a very fascinating word. It's a very important word. I'm going to put up a screen that kind of, I'm going to, we don't do this very often, but it'll help you to see this. This is the Hebrew word konegdo, and konegdo is a compound word, so it's two Hebrew words that are placed together. The first Hebrew word is the word ki, and this word is uh, not very common in the Hebrew, but it, it's, a, it's a word that is best translated um, as or like. 
So ki means something that's like something else. And the second word is the word neged, not naked, although that's a part of this, but neged is the word that is a Hebrew word that's translated opposite or against. And so you take those two words, you put them together, and it's the, the, the best way to translate this word is a helper. Adam needed a helper who was like opposite to him. Like opposite. Now think about this. With Eve, there's both likeness and there's difference. She's like Adam, but she's also opposite to Adam. Eve is a human like Adam. Eve is an image bearer just like Adam. Equal in every way. And yet, she's not identical to him. She's female. She's not male. And this creates a difference that is complementary. And so the translation fit. The, the, the most helpful illustration I've heard of this is a puzzle. When you're working on a puzzle and, and you're trying to find the piece that you need, you, you have the piece that you're working with, you're not looking for a, a piece that's exactly identical to the piece you're, you're trying to fit. You're looking for one that's like opposite. It fits together. And this is what's happening in this verse. Adam needs a helper. He needs a helper in this moment, but he doesn't just need another pair of hands to get the work done. If that were the case, another male would suffice. It was not just about work. God had left Adam in the garden and he said, be fruitful and multiply. In order to fulfill your mandate, you need to be fruitful and multiply. And in order to be fruitful and multiply, you need a helper who is fit for you. You need someone who in every way anatomically is like you, but is opposite you. I don't have to get graphic here, but it just in terms of the female anatomy, men and women are complementary. They fit together in a way that has the power to create human life. And this is beautiful. And all of this is a part of Paul's argument. I told you several weeks ago, Paul is not just deciding to point out homosexuality because he's a mean-spirited person or he wants to be controversial. What's happening in Paul's argument is he's dealing with issues related to design and purpose and function. And the ability to create human life is central to that design. So pleasure, procreation, but now our third word, union. God designed sex to bind a man and a woman into one flesh. This is verse 24, the one flesh union. You know this verse. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two of them shall become one flesh. One flesh. And this is a part of God's design. Sex is designed by God to make a man and a woman into a new thing. Something new is created. Have you ever thought about this? I say this at wedding ceremonies when, when the people have gathered and I'm in my introductory comments, I'll say, many of you do not realize this, but today you're going to witness a miracle. 
You're going to witness the miracle of God taking two people who in this moment are autonomous individuals and in just a moment, they will be fused together into a new thing. What the Bible calls one flesh. And this is significant. This is profound. This is powerful. So you can feel with each additional word, pleasure, procreation, union, with each additional word, we are ascending in significance. We're moving now into the territory of something that God does that is miraculous. And sexuality is at the heart of it. Notice something about Genesis 2.24. Just let's, let's have you hover over that verse. This is the main marriage statement in all of the Bible. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This verse gets quoted several times in the New Testament by Jesus and Paul. It's like, it's a, it's a paradigmatic verse about marriage. And here's what I want you to notice as you look at that verse. Moses is not talking, Moses who's our narrator, he's our writer here. When he says this statement, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Notice he's not talking about Adam and Eve anymore. Have you ever thought about this? He cannot be talking about Adam and Eve because there's no father or mother yet to leave. What Moses does in this moment is he's finished narrating the story of the creation of Eve, Adam's song, the the rib, the whole story. And what Moses does is he says, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop and I'm going to pop up a level to a theological level. And now I'm going to tell you what that whole story means. It's a summary statement. Therefore, Moses says, Now, let me explain to you the meaning of all this. And the meaning is that Adam and Eve become an example of what every marriage is from that point forward. They're like the prototype. They're the first marriage, and every marriage after that is modeled after this first marriage. And Moses says, and here's what happens. A man leaves his father and mother, He holds fast to his wife and the two of them become one flesh. And Moses says, that whole story about Adam being alone, it's not good. God creating the woman out of the rib of the man, God bringing the woman to the man, that whole thing serves as a paradigm. This is why, have you ever noticed, this is why in Christian weddings, we retell this Genesis 2 story. Have you ever thought about this? We just retell the whole story. What happens at the beginning of a wedding? You come in and there in the, in the, in the, you're sitting in the audience and when you look up, the man is standing alone. Have you ever thought about this? He's alone. 
Now we mess with this moment. I remember one time going to a wedding, one of the most beautiful weddings I was ever at. It was in a forest and we were looking, we were sitting kind of in the forest and we were looking out over a lake and the wedding processional music started and the groom was not there and people started getting really nervous. They're like, the guy is gone. He's like halfway down the road. People are freaking out. And suddenly from around the corner out on the lake, a canoe comes around and there's the groom, you know, and he's, and his hair is blowing in the wind. I'm like, he's still technically alone. So it qualifies. Okay. All right. But we re, we relive this moment, man, standing alone. This is why when you're at a wedding, you're looking up at the guy and then you're waiting, you're waiting in anticipation. When will the bride breach the door? Right. And what happens? Heavenly father comes with Eve to bring Adam. And the man is thinking, at last. (laughs) I'll never forget that day for the rest of my life, my wedding day. I don't remember many details about that day, but I do remember what Kathy looked like when she rounded that corner. And I remember thinking, at last. (laughs) I remember holding hands with her right before we said our vows. And as I looked in her eyes, she had this look. It was kind of like she was a little bit afraid, a little bit nervous, but also, and she was marrying me, so she was nervous and afraid. (laughs) So she was nervous, but also this sense of like, this is right. And, And this very real palpable sense, something is about to happen to us. That's more than just a contract. It's more than just an agreement. It's not something you just come and go. We're about to be fused together somehow in a union that the Bible calls one flesh. And that union is, involves sexuality, it involves spirituality, it involves our emotions, it involves our volition. It's this comprehensive Connection where I sometimes will say, I don't know anymore where I end and Kathy begins. Because we're one flesh. And sex is at the heart of it. You know, the Apostle Paul said an astounding thing in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't turn there, I'm just going to put these verses. He was writing to a church that was confused about sexuality. People were doing all sorts of things with sexuality outside of the design. And Paul said something very bold. He wrote, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. But look at this. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So Paul says, my primary argument for why you should not be having sort of casual sex outside of a marriage is that every time you have sex with someone, you form the one flesh union. Now, I would imagine that many Christians have never even really dealt with what Paul's saying in that verse. He's saying there's really, there's no such thing as casual sex. 
Casual sex is not just a, you drop in for the night and then leave and there's no ties, there's no connections. No one actually really believes that. We know that that moment of sexuality is so intimate, it's so deep. This is why there's so much pain, folks, in our society. Because we know we've formed a bond in that moment that if we do it casually, we never leave whole or complete. Paul says, this is the reason. This is why it's so critical you get the the purpose of sexuality. Sexuality is powerful and beautiful and amazing and used outside of the boundaries of how it was designed. It can cause all kinds of pain and brokenness and unfulfillment. Now, all three of these first are absolutely true. They're true. Pleasure, procreation, union. But if we stopped here, this is why I'm going to go to the fourth one. If we stopped here, which is where most people stop, even often in the church, we stop there. We don't talk about where I'm headed. Here's the problem. What we're doing is we're neglecting the ultimate purpose of sex in scripture. Now I'm going to demonstrate this in just a minute. The ultimate purpose of sexuality is not those first three. And not only that, if we stop there, just think about how that sounds. If we stop there and we have no other purpose for sexuality, think how that lands for people who for one reason or another will never get married or will never be involved in some form of sexual intercourse either because they are same-sex attracted and they have decided to follow in the way of Jesus or because they have, they're, for some reason, they're living a life of singleness, which the Bible holds up in high regard. Jesus was single. Paul was single. Lots of singleness in the Bible. Singleness is not a second-class experience in the Christian church. So think we make what think what an error we make in the church when we idolize marriage and sexuality as if those are going to fulfill your wildest dreams. Think the damage that does for people who are living in singleness or for one reason or another won't get married, won't have sex. Folks, I know married people who are miserable and unfulfilled. And I know single people who are extremely happy, right? They're really glad they're not married, actually. (laughs) Okay? So we know that sex and marriage do not fulfill our wildest dreams. And in the church, if we idolize them, we do so much harm to people who think that's the only way to be happy, but it's not. And so that brings me to the fourth purpose, which is by far the most important. Heaven. God designed sex. Think about this. Just bear with me. This is deep. God designed sex to point us forward to a deeper longing. A longing that is actually the, the truest longing of my heart. And it's a longing that can never be fulfilled in this immediate temporal life. One of the most profound statements I have read in my, in my studies, I've been studying so much. I, I want you to know, I have read every single book that I can possibly get my hands on so that I 
approach this passage with, with as much thoroughness as I can. And I was reading a book by a, a scholar named Rebecca McLaughlin, who's just, she's amazing. And one of the things she wrote in one of her books, she, this, this little sentence, it, it was almost like an afterthought. She said, God intended sex to disappoint us. Now think about that. God intended sex to disappoint us. Or at the very least, leave us never quite satisfied. If I said, raise your hands if you are 100% satisfied with your sex life, okay? It would be uncomfortable because some of you are sitting with your spouse, all right? <laughs> okay? Imagine just how many people would, would say with complete honesty, I am being completely 100% fulfilled as a sexual person. And I think we could, I think the argument could go, there's actually that God intended sex to never totally fulfill that desire. By the way, Rebecca McLaughlin probably got that from reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, where C.S. Lewis said something very similar. He wrote, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. A man feels sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I love that. I think that's what's happening when it comes to sex. You say, why did God create us as sexual creatures? Why did God create us with these desires that we live with? Why do I have this longing for intimacy to be connected with someone? And part of the answer is that those feelings, those desires were meant to reveal something deeper about the way you were made. Those desires were never intended to cause you to think or go after something in this life thinking I can find complete fulfillment while I'm here. The purpose of those desires was to constantly point you forward to this realization. I was created for a union with someone else that will fulfill all of my desires for connection. A union with Christ, my creator. Now, this may be really hard for some of you to grasp because we are, we are so used to talking about sex in purely physical terms and sort of, and blushing as we talk about it. It seems very odd. It seems very, sometimes maybe even weird to connect sexuality with things that are spiritual. But I don't know if you know this, the Bible does it all the time. It's very interesting. I'm gonna take you to one passage in Ephesians 5, but today, go read, if you want to read a really interesting text, it's the Lord's Day, so you should read the Bible anyway, go home and read Ezekiel 16, and listen for the way that the writer Ezekiel uses sexuality as a part of a metaphor 
for our relationship with God. It's very fascinating. But I'm going to take you to Ephesians 5, which is where we'll end today. Ephesians 5 is one of the other places where Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. And it's a passage about marriage. And it's extremely important. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 28, the Apostle Paul writes, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And so far the reader's thinking, great, Paul's talking about marriage. The reason a husband should love his wife is because no one ever hated his own body. Look at this. Then Paul makes a pivot. Just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now, verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. But I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so the reader says, what? Paul's talking about marriage. He quotes a marriage story. Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father, hold fast to his wife. That's covenant language. We, in the church, we describe marriage as a covenant. They hold fast and they become one flesh. And Paul says, mystery, amazing and I'm telling you that this is actually about Christ and the church. Yes, it is about human relationships. But the point from the very beginning, from the very first moment of the book of Genesis, the point of marriage was to serve as a metaphor, a pointer. It's always pointing forward to a deeper fulfillment, never totally fulfilled in this life. Do you have longings that feel unfulfilled? God wrote those longings, hardwired them into who you are as a spiritual person. Why? Because he's mean? No, because he's trying to point you forward to that one moment when all those longings will finally be fulfilled. Even marriage is not ever about marriage in this life or in the scripture. Marriage is a pointer a signpost, a day is coming when the true union, the true connection, the true one flesh union will happen when Christ, the bridegroom, finally comes for his bride. Interesting, the Bible begins with a marriage. All throughout scripture, marriage is used as a metaphor, male and female, male representing Christ, the groom, the female representing the bride, and the Bible ends with a marriage, the marriage supper of the lamb, and the whole thing is supposed to serve as a launch board into our heavenly destination. And now you step back and you say, wow, the Bible has so much to say about the purpose of sexuality. This is critical. This is so important for me to understand this as a Christian. Heaven forbid that the church would only be known for what we're against. Right, church? That breaks God's heart when, the, when our reputation is, the only thing the church is talking about is what they're against. And here I am saying, the Bible is 
Most of the time it talks about what God is for. Amen. And God is for something beautiful and God is for something good. And yes, because God has design, that design creates natural boundaries and uses of sexuality that fall outside of those boundaries fall outside of God's will and they create harm. But we start by saying, look at what sexuality is for. Now, I'm going to close with one last thing. What about you? Do you feel longings in your life that have gone unfulfilled? Do you have desires in your life for which you have felt that have not been fulfilled in this life? Expectations that have been let down? Hurts that you carry around in your heart and your life? One way to respond to that would be to say, this world is terrible. God must not love me. Another way to respond to that would be to say, this is actually a signpost. That feeling, that longing, like C.S. Lewis, there must be a fulfillment. And perhaps that fulfillment, I'm never going to find it in this world. And God says, exactly. Now let me invite you into a relationship with the one person who can begin the fulfillment, a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'd like to pray about that right now as the worship team comes. Will you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, how we, how we wanna thank you for your word, for the wisdom, the insight, the truth, even for the way that it reveals, it's, it's a revealing book. It peels back the curtain and it lets us see reality. Sometimes in ways that we're not used to seeing. Sometimes in ways that disrupt us or make us uncomfortable. And it even has the power, Lord, to reveal in our own hearts emotions and longings and feelings that have gone unfulfilled. I know, Lord, in a room this size, I know there are many who are here today who have felt immense hurt around the issue of sexuality. Perhaps loneliness, perhaps betrayal, brokenness, confusion. And so we just pause in this moment, Lord, to acknowledge that hurt. It's real. There's no wisdom in rushing past it or pretending it's not true. It's real. People who have realized that same-sex attraction is a part of their experience in this world. And for them, perhaps that has just been an experience that was unwanted. Maybe they even prayed that it would be taken away. People who, for one reason or another, marriage was just not a part of their life. Forgive us, Lord, if we've talked about marriage or sex in a way that would cause more hurt for someone in that way. And yet all along the way, God, realizing that those 
desires and those longings are pointing us to the one relationship where they will be fulfilled. And so we think now, Jesus, about you, about your love for us, about your grace and your kindness towards us, Lord God. Only you have the power to fulfill every longing of our hearts. And we say, thank you, Father. And we want to worship you this day, Lord. So we pray these things together in the powerful name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.